0: Last week we looked at several aspects of the covenant structure that the Lord set up as a framework for his people. He had saved them and in that way he took to himself the right to order the way they were going to live. And what I want to do this evening is to consider with you the broad scope of how God dealt with his people throughout the rest of Old Testament history from the time of Moses right through into the period after the return from the exile. I don't know when you were at school, and uh, if it was a little toil ago, perhaps the idea God of history suggests that I'm going to be dealing a great deal with the dates of the kings of Israel and major events in Israel's history. Uh, I don't think I'm going to mention more than one or two dates at all. What I'm wanting to do Fascinating though the question of dates are. There's a great deal. It's a matter all on its own. But I'm not going to take that up this evening. I want instead to ask what sorts of questions should we be asking when we read Old Testament history? What sort of perspectives uh, should we bring uh, to those passages of the Old Testament so that they will speak to us, so that they'll come alive to us? Because it's as we work out how to approach these passages and as we see certain key features of them, we'll begin to understand how the Old Testament can come alive for us today. The covenant wasn't static structure wasn't something that God gave to his people and said to them right now you've arrived you've got my covenant you've got all these arrangements that's the end of the matter quite to the contrary God was concerned with how his people were going to live in subsequent generations God was not only looking at them he was monitoring their history and he was showing himself active in history by responding to the way they lived and that's a truth that the church has constantly to be reminded of perhaps we can accept that God was active in history with the benefit of hindsight we can look back and say yes God was working at that period in the past but we've got to learn in each and every generation that we are still living in the world in which God is active. His character hasn't changed. The way he looks on his people, the way he looks on his church, the way he watches what we are doing, and the way he blesses and rewards are still the same. And so when we look at how he acted in past generations, uh, we can become more sensitive towards understanding how he's active now. When we look at Old Testament history, there are perhaps a number of problems we encounter. Some people go and feel disappointed that Scripture doesn't answer all the questions that we might want to have answers to. But then Scripture wasn't written. The histories of the Old Testament weren't written to give us answers to all the questions we want answers to. The fact that all the answers aren't there doesn't undermine the accuracy of what is there. All history is selective in what it recounts. What is presented is what the historian considers to be of interpretative significance. And that's where the great bonus of scriptural history lies. This is history with inspired interpretation it's not merely a human assessment of the events of the past that's been given ultimately what we have is not only a truthful record of what took place but also the divine assessment of what took place and as you would agree that is the only assessment that truly counts Perhaps we can easily lose our way, we can easily lose our bearings when we try to work out how God is working in history now. But in the historical books of the Old Testament, we're left in no doubt because we have divinely inspired interpretation about what was right and what was wrong, about what was good and what was bad. And we're also dealing with covenant history we're dealing the focus is on the relationship between God and his people God and his chosen people at one level all peoples are the same before God he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth there is no disputing the sovereignty of God over all that goes on at one level, all peoples are the same before him. And the prophets sometimes had to remind Israel that her experience was not so unique. Uh, she shouldn't become uh, full of self-importance because of the way God had dealt with her. That's why the, the prophet Amos, for instance, uttered the divine challenge. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Caftar, and the Syrians from Kir?" Israel that looked back to that great event in her history when God brought her out of Egypt and God saying, yes, but I'm also the one who brought all sorts of other peoples from different places into the neighborhood of Palestine. The God they were dealing with, the Lord, is sovereign over all of history. But at another level, Israel was unique. Blessed are you, O Israel who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. And the significance of scriptural history is because of that unique relationship. It is plotting, it is charting the unique relationship between the Lord and Israel as the people of God. That's, how, that's what lies behind uh, how Paul uses and teaches us, tells us how we should use Old Testament history when in 1 Corinthians 10 he says of what happened in the Old Testament days now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did these things happened to them as examples and are written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come the warnings of Israel's history were inscripturated so that subsequent generations of God's people might observe and learn. The fact that it's warnings that Paul emphasizes there might seem to make this a sad study, a negative study. And it often is. But it's by no means exclusively so. Because it's a study of the covenant relationship. And remember that at the essence of that relationship, in terms of the response of the people, there was always the two sides. If they obeyed, they would enjoy the blessings of the covenant. If they disobeyed, God as their father would chastise them to bring them to their senses spiritually. The covenant always had spelled out clearly to God's people what they could expect if they disobeyed God. Alas, it was so often the case that the record of their history is a record of disobedience. Many modern critics think that the covenant statements of Deuteronomy, say Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 29, where these matters were set before Israel by Moses, set before them very clearly, modern critics frequently think that these were written up afterwards, many centuries later, as a result of the experience the people had undergone. But that is not true. It is not true, as we saw last week, to the whole idea of the covenant that existed in Moses' day. The great kings demanded obedience and said that they would bless those who were obedient and punish those who were disobedient. And God was pleased to use that model to warn his people. History is such a continuous scene of warnings disregarded. Whether the history of God's people, whether the history, secular history of nations. It's such an ongoing record of warnings disregarded and individuals and nations not living up to the standards that they already know about. That we shouldn't be surprised that even though Israel had the testimony of the word of God, even though Israel had the warnings solemnly enunciated to them by Moses, the warnings solemnly enacted in covenant ceremony, that they still went astray. So what I want now to move on to do against that background of what it is that we're trying to focus on is to look at those books of Scripture that deal principally with Israel's history in the Hebrew Bible there are four books of Israel's history and they're called the former prophets Joshua Judges Samuel and Kings and nowadays when we're talking about the historical books of the Old Testament we generally add Chronicles and perhaps Ezra and Nehemiah as well. Samuel, Kings and Chronicles were each of them originally one book. We now are used to them being divided into two. But that's just a matter of the convenience of scribes in early centuries. Particularly when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the, the Greek text of kings and, and chronicles was so long that you couldn 't fit it onto one scroll, and so they had to divide it over two scrolls. The Hebrew Bible never recognized the division into first and second Samuel or first and second kings until after the Renaissance, after printing was invented, and the the divisions that were in the Greek and Bibles and the Vulgate particularly were imported back into. Uh, the, the Hebrew Bible uh, from the Greek tradition. I don't know if any of you have ever looked at older editions of the Authorized Version. Uh, the first book of Samuel, the older ones used to say, and then underneath in smaller type, commonly called the first book of Kings. Have you ever wondered why? It's because of what it was called in the Latin commonly there doesn't mean ordinary people called it this. It means in the Vulgate, this was the name that was found. And they didn't have the name Samuel, the book of Samuel at all. They counted the four together as 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 3rd Kings and 4th Kings. And that was still common in the Roman Catholic tradition uh, until fairly recently. So if you ever get an author who's referring to 4th Kings, you can have a fierce stab at where he comes from. <laughs> but the point I'm wanting to emphasize this evening is that if you are reading Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, don't think of them as two separate books. I'm going to look particularly a moment in Samuel, at Samuel and to see what difference it makes to understanding them, to think of them as the originally were, as one book. The Hebrew Bible had the, the four former prophets because it balanced it also by the four latter prophets. Uh, The the Hebrew scribes liked that sort of balance and they had four latter prophets, the sort of people that we would normally think of as prophets and about whom I'll probably say something, God willing, next week. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Put them all together as one book and you get four. But let's ask this question. Why did the Jews... Think of the books that we call the history books of the Old Testament, why did they think of them as the former prophets? I don't think we should lightly set aside that title. It's telling us something about the way they thought of them. It wasn't just that they thought that prophets had been involved in in writing them up, it was also because this was the way the prophets seemed to have worked. They gathered together material relating to the history of Israel, relating to the history of God's people. And they gathered that material together so that they might understand the way of God's dealing with his people. So that they might use the lessons of history to challenge and to console subsequent generations. That's the challenge that the former prophets present These books, these history books have been called by someone that the sermon illustrations preceding the sermons of the prophets themselves. And that's a useful way of thinking of them. Uh, Provided that is, you're not used to the sort of sermon illustration that someone's thought up. uh, And has no real basis in fact. As sermon illustrations, these are taken from real life. These are real history and not just contrived by a a desperate preacher on a Saturday evening to reinforce some point of theology. So let's turn to the first of these historical books, Joshua. Joshua was written to keep alive the memory of the Lord's covenant dealings with his people. And as you come and as you read, and I trust you will go away and think about reading through some of these books afterwards. As you come to read Joshua, come with a sense of expectancy. Joshua is the book of achievement. Joshua is the book where the Lord's promise is realized. It is the epoch of new beginnings. And as you read it, you will be struck by the hope the confidence, the sense of progress as the people come across the Jordan into the land and take possession of their promised inheritance. Oh, It's true that there are many aspects to the situation that don't completely fit in with that view. But that is an aspect of the truthfulness of scriptural history. It's acknowledged that much of the land is still unoccupied, that certain enemy cities are not destroyed, although their armies were defeated. It's recorded that certain of the tribes were rather slow to enter in to the territory that was allotted to them. But though these details are true to fact, and though these details show us how Joshua and Judges are telling different sides of the same story the overall perspective of the book of Joshua is one of joyful optimism and confidence in the Lord. I often think that we can apply to that time the the words of Wordsworth in a far truer sense than he ever applied them. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive but to be young was very heaven. The church coming in to its promised possession. You'll find that several commentators liken the book of Joshua to the book of Acts. And provided you recognize the differences that inevitably occur between the earlier and the later in the unfolding of God's promises, providing you recognize that, it can be a helpful comparison. Because Joshua is concerned with the conquest of the land promised to the fathers. And Acts shows the church moving forward in spiritual conquest of the then known world. And in both books you'll find from time to time there are summaries of oh, what's been achieved to date. And there is a, a sense of confidence just as the, uh, the, the Christian community in Acts is so often found speaking fearlessly and boldly in the Lord's name, so too in Joshua uh, you find the people acting boldly, fearlessly, moving into the possession that God has allowed They were sure that the Lord would fulfill his promises. And that's what's recorded in Joshua 21. Verses 43 to 45. The Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers. They took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed one was fulfilled. Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. A summary of the message of the book. And it goes on to end in a high note. With Joshua's farewell address. The renewal of the covenant at Shechem. And the people again pledging their loyalty to the Lord. We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Joshua 24, 24. The people had managed to gain possession of what the Lord had promised when they acted faithfully, when they responded with obedience and loyalty to the covenant requirements of the Lord. And the book of Joshua still speaks to the church in every age when we are perplexed by insecurity and fear. Whenever we are afraid to move forward in the Lord's name, Joshua, the message of the book of Joshua, comes and challenges us for our faint-heartedness. It challenges us by saying, there is what could be done by the people who not only had the Lord's promise, but acted as if they were believing in a God who would fulfill his promise. The challenge is for us to move forward confident. Not confident of our own strength or confident of our own ability. Joshua contains enough examples of what happened when people tried to move forward in their own wisdom. But when we are confident of the everlasting faithfulness of God to what He has committed Himself, then we can move forward with the progress and the confidence and the success. That is to be found, recorded in Joshua. If we then move into the second of the former prophets, judges, ah, then we come into a quite a different epoch in God's dealings with His people in history. The first generation that have entered the land have died. And we're in this book when the situation of the people turns sour. Judges records the troubled history of God's people in the aftermath of the conquest. They're no longer confident. They're no longer moving forward. We no longer, as we read, judges get caught up in their excitement and their progress and their triumph. Oh no, it's an era of division, a time of internal apostasy. Not only do we find it recorded that time and again the people were defeated at the hand of the enemy, we also find it that they were set one against the other. One tribe refused help to a brother tribe. Reuben stayed at his campfires and Dan lingered by his ships even when others were in need. It went even further it was in this time when tribe fought against tribe in inter conflict the people of Israel slew the tribe of Benjamin almost to the point of extinction what had gone wrong it had pleased God to test the loyalty of the people In the epoch of the judges, there wasn't new revelation given to the people. It's not a time when God gave greater insight into his purposes. What he asked was rather that the people remain true and loyal to what they already had. They had to maintain the truth against external pressure. And looking back, perhaps we can find it difficult at first to realize oh, how it was that the people of God, who had known his intervention in their national history in such a tremendous way, the people of God who had come into the land that they acknowledged had been given to them by the Lord, how was it that these people lost their spiritual moorings so sadly? It wasn't because there was lack of revealed truth. The covenant message given by Moses was still uh, their treasured possession. The covenant standards were still in their midst. It wasn't as if they had not the light of God's word. wasn't as if they didn't have the tabernacle at various sites throughout the land in those days. They were in a position where they should have been able to show their gratitude to God for all that he'd given them pressure came from outside. It had a history in that God had told them to exterminate the people of Canaan, and they'd been disobedient in that. And subsequent generations, for many centuries, had to pay the penalty of that disobedience. Because the people, when they came into the land, were shepherds. They had flocks. But they hadn't engaged in settled agriculture. Or they'd been as slaves in Egypt. But the agriculture of Egypt, dependent as it was on the Nile, was nothing like the agriculture that they were going to have to practice in Canaan. There was nothing in Egypt corresponding to the hillside terraces of Palestine for cultivating vines. It was a totally different agriculture. And Israel came there and naturally enough they started to copy what was going on amongst the peoples who were already there. And the problem they had to grapple with was that for the Canaanites... Agriculture was a matter of religion. Canaanite religion was a fertility religion. And one of the things that that meant was it focused on ensuring that there would be a good crop the following year. And how did you ensure there was a good crop the following year? You gave gifts to the gods. You tried to induce the gods, the gods of nature, to bless your endeavours. And there was Israel coming out of the wilderness trying to cope with the challenge of adopting the technology of Canaan, the agricultural practices, without adopting the religious practices of Canaan. If they went and said to one of their Canaanite neighbours, why is my crop so poor? He wouldn't have said to them necessarily, it's because you forgot to dig this field before you planted it. He would have said it's because you didn't offer the sacrifice at the temple of the goddess. Or you didn't go and engage in some of the orgiastic rites at that temple. And if you didn't have a clear idea what worshipping God was all about, if you didn't have a clear idea of what God was requiring of you as an individual, It was very easy for the desire for prosperity, the desire to have a good harvest, to override the need for loyalty to the Lord, quite apart uh, from the sensual attractiveness of so much of the Baal worship. And time and again, Israel had to learn how badly wrong things would go if they didn't get their priorities right, if they didn't get their thinking right. Scripture records they went off and worshipped false gods. And it wasn't just that the, the the false religions came and attracted them, as it were, at a, a, a religious level. The matter was a, a whole matter of culture A matter of seeing the priority that God had placed before them of depending on him and seeing him as the Lord of the harvest. So God's testing of his people in the epoch of the judges was designed to bring them to a deeper understanding of the nature of the bond that existed between them. In Canaanite religion, if you paid the... offered the sacrifice, if you engaged in the rites, you almost by sympathetic magic could force God to bless you. It was a totally amoral religion. Nothing about good or evil, it's just if you do this, you will get the blessing. And God had placed before his people the far harder challenge, the far greater test of walking before him according to the moral demands of his law. And in that way, he would be pleased to bless them. He was faithful to his covenant even though his people were not. And when they called on him, as they did time and again throughout the book of Judges, he raised up a judge to save them. Judge isn't a good translation. Um, When we talk about judges, we think of people sitting on benches and in law courts. The, The office of judge was something that wasn't just found in Israel, it was found... Uh, throughout the Semitic world, uh, it's a much more uh, figure of a high administrative officer. Uh, it's, it's not just a matter of um, making decisions in law courts. It's making policy decisions uh, regarding the welfare of the land, whether at the military or the economic level. The leader perhaps doesn't quite catch it either very difficult to get it because the the, the role isn't quite the same in our civilization but God raised up these men and women he raised them up so that they would provide a focus and the leadership that the people required to bring them back from the spiritual wilderness into which they led themselves if they humble themselves before God he then gave them victory but it was a case that that time of prosperity was only temporary. The, the, the role of the judge passed away on his death. And again the people were left on their own. And again the people had to see how it was that they were going to live and face that challenge. God indeed preserved his church through that time. But oh, what abominations are recorded in Israel. If you looked at Israel, you wouldn't have said, these are the tribes of Yahweh, the Holy One. You couldn't have distinguished their behavior on many an occasion from the behavior of the heathen nations all around. And again, it's towards the end of the book of Judges that you see the theme of that epoch, the same theme that the historians teaching is about in judges 21:25 it's a perceptive remark unlike joshua which ended with a renewed pledge of covenant loyalty judges ends in those days israel had no king everyone did as he saw fit and that's both a diagnostic and a programmatic statement the people of god were in a mess because they were no longer living true to the requirements of their covenant king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Personal ambition, self-interest ruled, not what the Lord required. And the statement's also programmatic in that it shows how God would act to reestablish his hold on the hearts of his people by providing them with a king. And that's where the book of Samuel begins. It begins in the time of the judges and charts how the Lord would provide his people with a true king. It begins at the time of the Philistine oppression. The people are once more under external domination. But you can't understand that apart from the internal rottenness of the people of God. Early chapters of Samuel introduces to the corruption of the sanctuary at Shiloh. The utter ineffectiveness of Eli, the spiritual leader of the land. And the degeneracy of his sons. But we're also shown that all is not lost. Even in those days of spiritual decay, the Lord had preserved for himself a remnant. And the remnants represented by Hannah and her quiet piety. In her personal circumstances, she knew bitterness of soul. She brought the matter to the Lord. He heard and blessed her. And then we find her singing that victory song that was read before I started. And that victory song is her creed. This is what informed her faith and gave her hope at the time when the land was under Philistine oppression. Don't interpret her words so narrowly as if they apply only to her personal circumstances. Oh, no doubt that's what impelled her to sing this song, but it's the song of faith. Hannah saw in the answer that the Lord had given to her prayer regarding her personal circumstances a token for good as regards what he could do for the wretched condition of his people and his cause in their midst. And so in the midst of her personal joy, full of all the Lord has done for her in giving her a son, she sings confident of the victory that she knows will come from the Lord Who will judge the ends of the earth. It's a victory song in anticipation of what the Lord will do. That is how the remnant encourage themselves. In the time uh, when the church's fortunes are at a low ebb. And in Hannah's song we find the words in verse 2. There is no rock like our God. These words constitute a key to understanding the message of Samuel. Indeed, they constitute a key to understanding the message of Old Testament history. Can I come at it from a slightly different angle? This is why I emphasized earlier that we ought to look at Samuel as one book and not two because there's a well-known ancient technique known as inclusion. Perhaps it grew out of the narrative techniques of ancient storytellers. I don't know. But it consists of repeating at the end of a work or at the end of a portion of a work certain key words or themes that the storyteller, the author, had used at the beginning And by repeating the same themes, he was able to mark off the divisions or the conclusion of what's being narrated. It's an ancient technique. It's by no means solely that. Uh, I I can't recall who was it that said, uh, my sermon technique is, first I tell them what I'm going to say, then I say it, and then I tell them what I've said. But he was following a roughly similar model. Not quite so subtly, perhaps. But the ancient authors used that. Now, the author of Samuel did too. It's not so much a tale of two cities as a tale of two sanctuaries. The story begins with the corruption of the sanctuary at Shiloh. And it ends on the threshing floor of Araunah, the site of the temple that will be But it's not just a matter of buildings provision. Not just a matter of purified worship. It's a total turnaround in the ethos of the people. And how does the book end? Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land. And the plague on Israel was stopped. We've been brought to the verge of a new era of the Lord's favour. The provisions being made for the temple and its worship, the pinnacle of restored fellowship. How far we've traveled from the debased worship of Shiloh, where the outward forms of worship existed, but in isolation from heart loyalty and loving obedience. By the end of the book of Samuel, the plague has been stopped by divine intervention and before long God will come in his glory presence in the Shekinah cloud to honour the temple and be with his people so there is an inclusion I began he says with the theme of Shiloh and the Debe's sanctuary there I end with the theme of the temple that will be but there's another level And if you're reading Samuel in a modern translation, you'll be alerted to this because there is poetry in the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 12. And then there's the poetry of the concluding songs of praise in 2 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23, the first verses of the chapter. It's as if the author of Samuel, whoever he was, was saying, I began with a song. And now I'm coming to the end. I'll finish with a song. But it's more than that. Because when we listen to the words of the song, we find the same themes occurring. There was Hannah who sustained herself and saw the way forward for the people of God in terms of God the rock. And there's David, who, when the Lord has delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, how do we find him singing? The same theme. Second Samuel 22, 2 Samuel 22:2, "The Lord is my rock." The next verse, "My God is my rock." Verse 32, "Who is the rock except our God?" Verse 47, "The Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be God, the rock, my savior." It's there in the beginning, the middle, and the end of his song of triumph. And it's there again in the last words. In his last words in Second Samuel 23 verse 3. Where he mentions again the rock of Israel. It is to the Lord as the rock. To whom the remnant looked For the transformation of the low condition of the church. And it was the Lord the rock. Who provided that deliverance. One of the surprising titles of God in the Old Testament. Because Israel's religion was, as they say, aniconic, didn't have images. It was the heathen who had their idols of wood and stone. It seems to overstep the mark in some ways to, to liken God, the Lord, to rock or stone. Indeed, the early Greek version of Scripture, the Septuagint, uh, the translators felt it compromised uh, the message of Scripture to call God the rock, and they avoided that translation. And that influence still lingers on in certain passages of the Authorized Version, where the rendering rocks avoided. Last verse of Psalm 19 in the authorised version. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. My strength and my redeemer is literally my rock and my redeemer. And of course it's best known in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 4. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Literally, for the Lord, the Lord Is the rock of ages. What was being said? Well, the rock is that which is unaffected by the elements all around it. It stands and withstands all that comes against it. God, the rock, at one level, is a picture of God unchanging. But especially it's a picture of God unchanging and reliable in his commitments to his people. In times of perplexity and bewilderment, we've to set over against our failures, our inability to recover lost ground, the reality of the divine commitment. In the New Testament, it's found in the words of Christ on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it God as the rock is presenting us with the truth that God's purposes in history will not be frustrated either by the ferocity of those who set themselves up against him or by the weakness of his own he has committed himself and from that commitment, God the rock will not depart. His pledged word is immovable. And if his people will but found their lives on that, they too will be impregnable. There's one other inclusion in the book of Samuel I'd just like to mention briefly before I move on. Hannah ended her prayer by saying, he will give strength to his king And exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. And that note's taken up too, again at the end of the book, in 2 Samuel 22. Verse 51. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. And in the next chapter, chapter 23, David describes himself as the man anointed by the God of Jacob. Hannah according to the light given to her, was looking to a kingly figure that God would have as his ruler on earth over the affairs of history. And much was accomplished by David. Great and real benefits were extended to God's people. But these were just indicators of what was yet to come. The Old Testament program looks through and beyond David to the final king, And in him, the Lord's program of recovery will be completed. David was a signal of what would eventually come to pass. But the one who is completely faithful, the one in whom there is no blemish, is the one who will be totally used by God to establish his rule over history. There's a lot more I'd like to say, but we have to move on. Looking briefly at the book of Kings now. And again it's one book. We find the record of Solomon's reign. Find the record of the division of the kingdoms. Find the downfall first of the northern kingdom. And then of the southern kingdom Judah. I'm not going to try tracing out the events in detail. Although there's a great many lessons to be learned from them. But notice how throughout the book there is an assessment of the standing of each king. Either you're told something like, this man followed in the footsteps of David his father, or this man failed. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And if it was the northern kingdom of Israel, we find time and again the sorry story. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Interpreted history means that we can now go back and look at these kings, look at their commitment, look at their lifestyle, look at what we're told, and be able to do what in a real sense we cannot do with men of our own generation. We can come to God's verdict on their lives and on their character and on what they did. It is inspired history and we are able to interpret it with confidence. Now the book of Kings was probably written by a prophet. We certainly know from Chronicles that Isaiah the prophet was responsible for composing a history of King Isaiah's reign. We find that in Second Chronicles 26-22. And it doesn't seem at all implausible that other prophets uh, were used under divine inspiration uh, to compose the book of kings. They, they drew in records that were already available. The book of the words of Solomon, the book of chronicles of the kings of Judah, the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. We can think of them as working in the way in which Luke worked uh, when he drew up the history of his gospel in the book of Acts. Under the Holy Spirit's guidance, being involved in sifting what was recorded and presenting it. But he was pre- the author of Kings was presenting it for a reason. He wasn't just recording facts. He was a prophet. He was seeking to impress God's message in the first instance on his own generation. And we know from where the book of Kings stops in the middle of the exile. That that generation was the generation of the exile. And that generation had a major problem. They were trying to grasp how could this have happened to us? How could Jerusalem, how could the temple have been destroyed? Have we been deluded all along? is God not able to withstand the attack of the heathen and their gods? And it was to a people bewildered, at a loss to work out what had happened to them. To that people, the author of Kings went back through their history, went back through the history of of the rains in the north and in the south and he was explaining to them that what had happened was not God failing in his covenant commitment it was God being true to his covenant commitment the curse of the broken covenant after long divine forbearance had come upon them And that's very clearly brought out in 2 Kings 21. Can I just read verses 9 to 15 there? Uh, The author has just detailed the abominations of the long dark reign of Manasseh. And we find the message, Manasseh led them, the people, astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh king of Judah has committed these detestable sins he has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols therefore this is what the Lord the God of Israel says I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria, the northern kingdom, and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab, the northern kings. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes. Because they have done evil in my eyes... And have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. It's the theme of the covenant. Covenant blessing or covenant curse, contingent upon obedience or disobedience. It had been set out by Moses way back in Deuteronomy. Kings is not a record of divine abandonment of his people. It is the record of the Lord being true to his covenant commitment. Despite his forbearance. Despite the repeated warnings he sent through his servants the prophets. The people continued in their rebellion. And to be true to what he had warned. God had to come and punish. The punishment came on them as the cumulative weight of guilt and sin from the exodus onwards eventually provoked a divine response. Kings, as we read it, is the record of the nation that went away from God, not once, not twice, but repeatedly. That went away from God despite the light of the word of God in their midst. God had eventually to be true to his warning and wipe them as one wipes a dish, turning it over. Now, I said earlier that, yes, there are warnings and there are solemn warnings, and that is one in Old Testament history. But there's another side as well. Old Testament history doesn't just record for us the sin of the Lord's people. It's also used to point the way forward. And with this we come to the last book that I'm able to deal with this evening, Chronicles. Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. It wasn't counted as one of the prophets, so it, uh, one of the former prophets, We don't know who its author was. Jewish tradition suggests Ezra. It certainly comes from Ezra's day. It's written well over a century after Kings. And by this time we're well into the post-exilic period. The Jews who had been in exile under the Babylonians had been permitted to return to the land when the Persians swept into power in Babylon. Not all the Jews who had been deported opted to come back to Jerusalem. In many respects, it was a rather poor response. And those who did come back were probably among the more pious in the community. They came back full of the promises of a grand future for God's people that they knew about from prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They came back expecting the Lord to do great things for them. And yet it turned out, to use a well-known phrase from Zechariah's prophecy, a day of small things. It took 20 years to get the temple rebuilt. And it was a sorry counterpart to the glory of Solomon's temple. For over 200 years, Judah remained a small part of a province in the vast Persian Empire, having to face the jealousy and the rivalries of neighbouring provinces. There were probably times in our history when the emperor wasn't as well disposed towards the Jews as Cyrus had been. Chronicles was history written for a despondent people. A people who were unsure of what the promises of God meant for them. They were asking themselves, do we still have a role to play in God's purpose? Has the God of history sidelined us? Are we written off as yesterday's men? Is it the case that one of these days our enemies are going to get the upper hand and totally overwhelm us? What are we to do? We feel small, we feel despised, we feel ineffective. What are we to do? Those questions are still around, aren't they? How is it that the word of God can be so full of promises and yet the reality that faces us in the church is such a sorry state? Is conservative and reformed theology to be written off as our critics would have it? Because they say we're caught in a time warp we're still living in the past. Thought has moved on. People are more enlightened. And what we say and what we present are just relics of ancient history to help the people of his own day deal with just that sort of question someone we don't know who really we often just refer to him as the chronicler was led by God's spirit to write a history to write a history of his people up to his own time he wrote a comprehensive history it starts way back with Adam. What was he saying? He was saying to the people of his own day, he was saying to the people of God, perplexed about where they were and where they were going, if you want to know what God's purposes are for you, you'd better begin by understanding just who you are. God's people can trace their lineage right back to Adam. Adam. You're not small. You're not insignificant. You're not a set of nobodies. Here is the grand history of what has gone before. You are members of that family whom God has chosen for himself. You are members of that family whose history is the history of the world, beginning right back there with Adam. And your destiny determines the destiny of this world. What is more, the chroniclers saying? If you look at the past, you'll see some very clear answers to all those questions you're asking. How are, you to go, how are we to go on living before God? How is it that God can have a purpose for us? How can we get the role that God wants us to play right? It's not a complete account of the history of the world that the chronicler presents. It's a very selective account. Not fabricated. Selective and fabricated are two quite different things. Some people allege it's invented. But the chronicler didn't have to invent anything. He didn't have to distort anything to establish his case. But he had a case he wanted to make. And he made it clearly by selecting those episodes in their history that made the very points he wanted to emphasize. How can the people of God... Expect great things from God. And Chronicles, and especially the part of it we know as Second Chronicles, is about revival. It's a very much underrated part of Scripture. Probably because if you're reading through, you have to get through all those genealogies before you get into the book. And partly because we perhaps also feel that we've read it all before in the book of Kings. And that seems to have been the, the, the view of the early Greek translators. They called Chronicles paralipomenon, the bits that were left out. (laughs) Gets you off on the wrong idea. Jerome, the translator of the revised version of the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, took a different view. He said, he wrote, The book of Chronicles is of such importance that without it, anyone who claims to have knowledge of the scriptures makes himself a fool that's quite an assertion but there's much that can be said to substantiate it i want to leave you with just one instance of this if you look at second chronicles 6 you have the dedication of the temple you have that grand prayer that solomon uttered on that occasion and then at the beginning of chapter 7 we're told when solomon finished praying fire came down from heaven Consume the burnt offering and sacrifices and the glory of the Lord fill the temple. Now there is a time when God's blessing was known among his people. There could be no greater sign of that in the Old Testament dispensation than that the Shekinah cloud, the cloud of divine glory, indwell the temple and fire descended from heaven. To consume the sacrifices. They didn't have to light a fire under them. As the priests had to. uh, In the ordinary course of events. Divine fire descended. And then after the extensive. Celebrations had ended. The people were sent home again. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night. And he said. And these are the words I want you to think about later. 2nd Chronicles 7. Verses 12 to 14. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. There's the divine program for history. It's focused on God's people. And it's realistic. Even though it's coming just after the temple has been built, just after God has come in the glory presence into their midst, he, he, God is recognizing the scenes that Solomon had set before him set before the Lord in his prayer and saying yes there are going to be times when I as their father will have to chastise my people when I as their father will have to deal with them in this way but this is how they are to respond when disaster has come upon them because of their sin my people the people who are called by my name Notice that emphasis. It's not the world that's to be revived. It's the church. The people of God have got to get back into a right relationship with the Lord before they can act as the conduit for divine blessing into the world around them. It is the focus is on my people who are called by my name. They are the ones who have to act. And they have to humble themselves. They have to pray. They have to seek my face. They have to turn from their wicked ways. Four significant requirements that are part of the preparation for divine blessing. And the God of history then commits himself. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Notice that third aspect. It's that one that probably uh, we're less, least familiar with. Uh, when God hears prayer, yes. When God forgives sin, yes. I will heal their land. It envisages the revived people of God sp- as a source of blessing spreading out into the wider community. This is how the God of history has worked. This is how the God of history still works. And if, as we follow Jerome's advice and read through Chronicles, you'll find there time and again records of revival. Periods that the chroniclers said there's a lesson there to be learned. For the church of God, when it feels despised and neglected and ineffective, the remedy is there. The God of history is prepared to act to bless within history. He is prepared to come here and now. But the focus is on his people, humbling themselves and praying, seeking his face and turning from their wicked ways. The God of history has recorded the history of the Old Testament scriptures. So that through its warnings and through its examples, we now might find that direction and that instruction that will meet us in the particular situation, and the particular need, even though we are those on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much once again, Professor Mackay. Now, there is a period of time when uh, we can do what we've been doing for the last two weeks of sharing comments or or asking questions for clarification who would be first to do that yes sir Um,
2: I'd like to pick up on uh, a couple of things that you said professor Um, firstly about uh, the, the lesson for the church how is the word of God so full of promise but the church is in such a sorry state today um, the 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 second aspect is perhaps a slight jest. Two Chronicles seven fourteen. Um, the uh, number seven there uh, very much pointed out. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just a tease. But um, it's, it is a very significant passage, as you as you said. And um, I really believe that um, the church today needs to repent of its attitude towards the Jewish people the Bible does say that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse it mm-hmm. and there has been a lot of anti-semitism a lot of persecution of the Jewish people by the church um, do, do you feel that that is justified?
0: Taking your, your first point first of all I find that it is one of the most perplexing features of the state of the church today, that we live in the New Testament age, that we have tremendous promises from God. And so often, if you look around, certainly in our country, not true in other there are other places, uh, as my students from South Korea keep reminding me, there are other places where the evangelical, even the Presbyterian church is growing But looking round Britain, uh, we are ineffective. Uh, We are very much a minority. And one has to ask why. And it is not the case that God is unwilling to bless. It is not the case that we can in some way try and say, well, uh, it's God's fault. He's not sending the blessing. He's not sending the spirit. We have to ask ourselves what it is that's wrong on our part. And that is the message of scriptural history. God is faithful to his commitment. And the problem is on earth. But it's very easy looking back and detecting other people's problems and looking at other eras in history and saying, ah, that's what was wrong then. It is much more difficult to analyze where we are, to analyze the situation that we're in. Because... We're much more aware of, shall we say, the grayness of our present existence. Uh, The advantage of scriptural history is that it's black and white. There are those who are condemned by God and there are those who are blessed by God and we can go through and we can say he's on one side and he's on the other. It's very much more difficult to do that in our own day and generation. But the focus is still on the fact that the problem is ours. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we are doing wrong? And I must say that I have come to the conclusion that more than anything else, it's because we lack a true faith, a true confidence, that God will live up to his promises if we will but just speak out. It's a a crisis of nerve. We, We are in a very real way, and I'm not... Say, I'm saying we, I'm not saying you, I'm saying we. we there is a, a hesitancy. We're aware of the, the fact that the media are on the other side. We're aware that there are many clever people on the other side who present all sorts of intellectual arguments to try and undermine what we're saying. We're very, very aware of the strength of those who would oppose our position. And we seem to have a very poor estimate of the divine provision that's been made to help us we're not prepared to venture forward you may that's where I would put it now your other one as you well know there are differences of opinion regarding the destiny of the Jewish people that's about all I can say I'm sure you'll all agree with me on Um, (laughs) I personally think that the Jewish people are unique in that of all the nations on earth, there are still aspects, and I'm not specifying which, of scripture that relate specifically to them and a time of future blessing for them. There is is no other nation has got uh, a guaranteed time of divine favor at some point in the future. Uh, From other nations, uh, the word may be taken away. Uh, There are many salutary examples of that in the New Testament church. If you go looking for the the churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation and see what's left now. Or if you go to the church of North Africa that gave life to Tertullian and Augustine and great men of the past and how it totally succumbed before the inrush of Islam. Uh, There is no church that can say we've a divine guarantee that we're going to remain. God's church will remain on earth, but there is no specific uh, place or nation or denomination that can claim uh, that as divinely guaranteed. There have been times when the church has looked upon the Jews in an unfortunate light, But I think that time has passed. I think that's a matter of history rather than of present attitude, at least as far as I'm aware. Uh, the, the, The Jewish people are not, however, special, and I must emphasize this, in the sense that they are going to get any blessing apart from Jesus Christ. It is a total misconception, to my mind, of the New Testament message that the Jews in some way are going to are, are, are will have a blessing apart from what is promised them as far as i can see is that there will be a time when they will come to know christ and in that way they will enter into the blessings of the new testament church because in a very real sense it, the modern equivalent of the old testament And that's why I keep using the phrase people of God, because it helps us see the continuity. The modern equivalent of Israel is those. (laughs) The modern equivalent of Israel consists of those who now are the people of God, just as they were the people of God in Old Testament times, and that is the Church of God. And the New Testament is one continuous record of apostles, and Christ, but the apostles particularly, taking the titles and the names and the promises that were made to the Old Testament people of God and saying these are now fulfilled in the church. And it's only in Romans, and particularly in Romans 11, that you see particular promises being made to Israel in terms of a time of faith to Christ. No, I've gone out on a limb there, I'm aware, but <clears throat> that, that's the limb I sit on. Thank you. Yes? Paul, cool. in 2 Chronicles
1: 7.14. Could we take that as a nation today and apply that to, say, the British nation,
0: or does it apply to the church, as you were just now? Well, that goes back, back to the question that somebody who was sitting over here last week. Was it you? Who asked last and week about... Paul has been in the same position. Has he, has he, has he, he's been stuck? <laughs> well, there was somebody sitting over here last week who asked about uh, what about the covenants that were made uh, centuries ago by, instance, in Scotland, say, or uh, yeah. like, people like the Covenanters and the League yeah. and Covenant. It's the same sort of question. I don't think that you can... Israel, in Old Testament days, was a nation and the church, And both aspects are there. I don't think that that link between nation and church has been preserved in the same form. Notice I'm being careful there. In the same form in the New Testament age. It is um, very difficult to take a national promise made to Israel and see that as something that can be totally separated from Israel as the people of God it is the case that a nation will be blessed now when that nation has turned to the Lord Uh, but I see that as something that will it doesn't come to them as a nation it comes to them through their commitment to the Lord and works itself out in every aspect of their living whether it's their church life or their national life if a nation uh, has turned to the Lord, then yes, th- th- there will be an undoubted change for the good, both in society and in politics and in economics and in everything else. But I would hesitate to identify any nation now on earth, and that includes the Jewish nation, with modern Israel, state of Israel, with the Old Testament Israel. They are decidedly different entities. Thank you. Yes.
3: At the present time, I'm reading a book called Sanctify the Congregation by Owen Roberts from the States, and it's a compilation of Puritan writers. Now, it was done just about the time that George Whitfield, uh, before he went to the States, um, and there was a visitation revival in that area of New England. And over and over again, those preachers were homing in on this verse, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then, and, and he, they were going, just about every um, sermon that, that has been printed has this theme running through, that it is the congregations of the churches that need to get together together to pray and to humble themselves, to have days of prayer and of, of humbling themselves before God and of confession, and at that time then the Lord will bless. But if, if in fact the people do not humble themselves, then there will be no blessing.
0: Would you like to? Yes, I, you, you're, you're stirring my memory of church history. I seem to remember there was something called a concert of prayer at that point. Was there not? Mm-hmm. No, no. Well, I'm coming to it because I seem to remember reading. Uh, of the link between the states and some Scottish ministers at that point. Um, I think
3: there was link with Glasgow University at that time. Mm, some
0: of the ministers, it could yes. be. I think that that was a very valid expression, a very valid application of this verse in those circumstances. What I hesitate to do is to say, let's copy them. I, I think that each and every generation has got to work out a contemporary application. Uh, we can learn by looking, you know, right, I, I'm very pleased to hear that verse is one that they used a lot. Right, we can learn from that. But I do sometimes wonder at the value of saying, well, everything's got to flow in that channel. Because the blessing came in that particular way then, it may be that it's still right, but I think we've got to ask ourselves, rather than just saying, well, let's copy them, Let, let's start this again, We've got to ask ourselves, what now fits in uh, to the, where we are now? Um, it will certainly be uh, derived from humbling themselves and praying, but it might not be an exact replica of what was done in the past. It'll still be the scriptural injunction, but I think we've got to feel our own way into what comes you know, for, for our own day and generation.
1: We may not be right to copy them, but in fact the, what you said about the people taking on the technology of Canaan I thought was very interesting because if we look at our 20th century setup, we have copied them when these people took on the technology of Canaan, we have taken on the technology of the 20th century namely, materialism uh, immorality greed lust, envy power we have copied these people. The lady is right that they may have used the words of the Old Testament, but surely we should be copying them in this sense, in that we learn, and isn't that what history is? History is not there as a figment of somebody's imagination, but it's there so that we'll learn from it. Now, it's clear to me that we've taken on the technology of the 20th century using technology as Hmm. an an exact word, like bishops, archbishops, clergy, priests of all (laughs) denominations, and we're not saying a word about it. We're sitting back and saying, well, that's all right, they can do it, it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to the Presbyterians or the Baptists. My question is, I think it applies to us all, and we should be on our knees asking God for his mercy, asking him to forgive our sins and speak up, perhaps. I I felt you did say that we, Mm -hmm. what's happening with the Canaanite technology. I love the phrase, I must admit. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I I
0: found when I began to grasp this, it helped me understand a lot. And we obviously use technology in slightly different senses. But, um, you know, I can remember men, ministers, who wouldn't have these things in front of them because they were suspicious of the technology. Um, we, We have adopted it, but Israel wasn't expected to go into the land and do nothing with it. What they had to do was to ensure that they took it without the accompanying values. And that's a difficult thing. And we failed. I agree. The the Christian community has taken on board the modern technology and technology is neutral. Well, I'll sometimes argue it's not, but for the most part, technology is neutral. But we've taken on all the values along with it. We've conformed to the world's perception of it. And that battle has been very largely lost. And yes, that may very well be one of the areas where a Christian lifestyle has got to re-examine and rework out, uh, you know, have I taken on board not just... Oh, well, <clears throat> difficult to say something without being too specific, but uh, to, to take on board the... Um, well, television without the culture that has pervaded television... Uh, take on board, uh, at a more general level, as you were saying, so many household goods, uh, and you then get into the cycle of thinking, oh, that one looks a bit shabby. It's still working, but it's not quite the the latest model, and you start turning it over on that basis. Well,
1: maybe I should help you, because you're you're thinking that we were using technology different. When you talked about the Canaanite technology, Mm. I thought you meant you took on the customs, the religion, the gods the praying the asteroids and that's what I mean today, well, yeah. modernism rather than computers and television no but you see
0: this is, this is, they came as a package they wanted to farm the land if you asked a Canaanite farmer how do you get a good crop out of this field he said you go to the temple and you went to the temple and they were using at that temple very similar words for God it looks from the remains that archaeologists have dug up as if many of the altars had substantial similarities uh, with the, the altars that were required by God, and people got confused. Words were being used uh, to mean two different things. And when I was saying they took, off, they, they had, they, they won, they had Canaanite technology, but it came wrapped up, packaged in a total worldview, and they swallowed it all. They didn't see that God. By demanding of them, the behaviour that he required was saying, you have got to split the technology from the world view that's accompanying it if you're going to take the technology on board. No, my problem with your technology was it covered bishops and archbishops. I'm no friend of bishops and archbishops. (laughs) I've never yet called them technology.
1: That's a new form of abuse, yes. (laughs) Any further points anyone wants to raise? Yes, Colin. He talked about Manasseh, and of course he repented, uh, he turned to God. And yet, uh, and then his son Amon took over, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then Josiah came, and there was a thorough reform there. But when Josiah died, judgment fell, and it was judgment of Manasseh. Could you talk about the sins visited upon the fathers <laughs> <I'm talking laughs> can,
3: I, can
0: I point you to one significant feature I don't know if I'll catch the verse as I'm speaking one significant feature of Josiah's Reformation and that is that it was, as somebody called it a dry-eyed Reformation there are, I think, four major periods of revival in Second Chronicles and in the other three periods when the people confess their sin there is a, yeah, I've got the verse now um, there is a, a very real sense that they were truly penitent. When it comes to Josiah's reformation, if you look at Second Chronicles, chapter 34 and verse 32, and the king is renewing the covenant. Now, Josiah was honorable, Josiah was upright, he's wholehearted. The king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord. He made all who were present to stand with him, and there are many who, taking that phrase, along with the fact that there is the absence in that description of the weeping over sin that was current that was prevalent in the three previous ones, and they would say oh, uh, that they would say that josiah 's reformation was really uh, not penetrating throughout the land. I I smiled because I just remembered what what I remember somebody saying. It was like the English Reformation. It started at the top uh, and was imposed, and therefore it could very readily be switched on and off uh, through various reigns. Unlike the Scottish Reformation, which started at the bottom of It was Calvinistic. Um, but, but no, sorry, I, I, I shouldn't put in these plugs. Uh, no, but the point is that Manasseh had a long reign. He repented, it seems, towards the end of his reign. But whatever changes he made in policy, the people's hearts had already been alienated. The basic life, the basic standards of the nation had gone. Ammon's reign just a short reign. When Josiah comes, Josiah himself is vexed for the state of the land, he is a godly king who tries his best to give the lead, but the underlying situation has become so desperate that the people don't follow. Oh, they say they, they, for a while there's a, things seem to go all right outwardly. Because Josiah, after all, was getting rid of the hated Assyrians. He was asserting national aspirations. He was bringing back Hebrew things into Israel. And there was a measure of popular support for that. But at the religious level, there seems to have been a considerable lack of response. Josiah did have round him a number of men who were as committed as he was in the inner circle of his inner cabinet, as it were but it doesn't seem to have spread throughout the land. And that in a very real sense, uh, Manasseh's impact and the impact of his reign couldn't be reversed by the measure
3: of blessing that did come under Josiah.